We're back in Mark, Mark chapter 7, a few verses, 24 through 30. So where we left off right before Pentecost, Mark 7, 24 through 30. Here's a question I've been wrestling with all week. Where is the intersection between faith and courage? Or put another way, do we have faith because it's a courageous act? Or do we have courage because we've exercised our faith? Now, there's a difference between the two. They're not the same. I know plenty of people who don't have a professing faith in God who have fearless lives. They have a lot of fortitude, but not always a lot of wisdom. So there's some flailing around as they try to search for truth. I also have known those who have followed the Lord, but don't venture to risk anything new for him, sometimes preferring safety over anything else. If we remember a famous analogy about faith, we might think about the first people to get in an airplane. In 1914, the first passenger airline service took off, operating between St. Petersburg and Tampa, Florida. Now, this was quite a daring endeavor. The plane only went 50 feet above the water. As people were used to traveling by boat or rail to get between the two cities. Now, imagine you're one of those who early have a chance to go up in an airplane. You look at it. You talk about it. You are assured, of of course, by those who are operating it that it's the best thing ever. But at some point, you choose to get on the plane believing that you're ready for new places. This is what evangelists have used for years to talk about faith, to help people have the final step of trusting God for salvation. You can talk about how great the plane is, but it isn't until you get in it that you're exercising your faith that it's going to take you somewhere. It's the same with Christ. We don't really exercise our faith until we surrender to him. But think about the courage that both might take. Terrified, you grab your bag and get in the plane. Fearful, you might walk to the altar, not knowing what's going to come next for you. This week I've been reading about Moses, the paragon of faith who was terrified to go before Pharaoh. God was talking to him in a burning bush, and Moses was arguing that he's not really the one to go. Maybe his brother Aaron should go since he's the better speaker. Why did he do this? Well, because he lacked courage. He was afraid. He believed in God. How could he not? God was talking directly to him. But he was afraid that maybe God's plan would not go well. So which is it? Does faith fuel our courage or does courage help us have faith? Do we believe so we act? Or in our action, do we find more faith than we ever thought possible? The woman who visits Jesus in the passage we studied today is why we're talking about this. She certainly had a lot of courage. And after her encounter with Jesus, I think she walked away with a lot more faith that she had when she decided to seek him out. From her interaction, we see that where faith and courage intersect is where Jesus often meets us, allowing us to see his power over the impossible. So today we're going to read this story in four parts, talking through it as we go and thinking about what's happening so the Lord might give us a new depth of insight. So let's start with the first verse, verse 24. 
From there, he, Jesus, set out and went away to the region of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know he was there, yet he could not escape notice. Jesus travels a far distance to get away from the crowds. I want us to look at a map for a minute. Jesus has been in the middle there around the Sea of Galilee, lastly in Gennesaret. And while here, people have been coming to him from Jerusalem, like the Pharisees we talked about a few weeks ago, which is about 76 miles. Now that's a sizable way to travel then. And Jesus goes even further from Jerusalem now to the corner up there in the top, which symbolically and physically puts more distance between he and the people who are wanting something from him. The leg of the journey over from Sea of Galilee to Tyre is about another 50 miles. So he goes to someone's house and he wants privacy. Have you ever wanted just to be anonymous? (laughs) Yeah. We live in a town where we have lots of celebrities, And it's a thrill sometimes for us to be able to see them, but we know that sometimes they just want to be regular people, unknown, not famous. Jesus is a high-profile person now, and for reasons Mark doesn't tell us, he just wants to keep it quiet that he's there. Now, in the Old Testament, Tyre is a bit of an enemy to Israel. Its name means the rock, and it had a natural harbor that was beautiful, but also served as a great fortress from those who would invade. Jesus escapes to the Mediterranean Sea. Remember that this is right after his latest scuffle with the leaders. And that latest scuffle happens after a series of ministry moments where there's no break. He's teaching, he's leading, he's healing, he's helping the disciples grow into their leadership. And whatever he's seeking, he's not wanting to make himself available to anyone. He's taking a vacation. However, as it happens, word leaks out about the goings-on of the famous, and Jesus does not escape notice. So let's think about that for a minute. Jesus cannot be hidden. Isn't that true today? We see his love between people where once there was hatred. We see his power displayed in the lives of those that were once decimated by addiction. We see how he's constantly making things new in a world where we constantly are facing death. We understand only he can bring about change in a person who was once so awful to be around because they had no love and they were completely self-centered. Jesus cannot be hidden when lives are transformed and changed and redeemed and we see goodness thriving where only once there was pain and sorrow. And so wherever Jesus is present, it's obvious And people are drawn to him, and they want to find him, and they want to seek him out because they want more of that goodness in their lives. They're hoping to find him in the ways that they want and need. So let's go to verses 25 and 26. But a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit immediately heard about him, and she came and bowed down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile of Syrophoenician origin. She begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. Now Mark shows us a lot about the woman, although we don't know her name. She's a Gentile from the region where Jesus is staying. She knows what's wrong with her daughter. She has spiritual intuition and understanding. When she comes, she bows down at the feet of Jesus and she begs him for healing for her daughter. 
There's a sense here of coming to the throne of the king. She immediately takes a posture of humility before him. In her desperation, she is telling him she knows she is less than he is. And that he has the power to help her if only he would. She's appealing to one higher than she is. It is beyond her ability to help her daughter. Here we see a mix of courage and faith. Have you ever had to go to someone and ask for something big and you were unsure how it would go? Asking for a favor from someone you didn't really know, but who you think could make your request a reality? This takes a lot of courage. It's terrifying, so we rehearse it, thinking about what we're going to say and what the right words would be and what we should wear so we make a good impression and it goes our way. Here, everything is against her. We don't know that they have a friendship or anyone common in relationship. She's not the right gender. She's not from the same religion. She's not from an influential place. She comes with nothing and no one to help her. What she has in her favor is the guts to ask which is fueled by a desperation that we understand. Someone she loves dearly is sick. Someone who cannot come for themselves, who may not even have the understanding of what's happening because of their uh, development and what's going on in their current state of mind. We understand this because daily we pray for those in our lives who are suffering, who are dependent on their friends and their family to help them and bring them to Jesus. We stood this morning... And ask for help in this sanctuary. Every week we do that. To pray for the needs of those who can't or won't come to ask on their own. This is an emotional scene. In Matthew, when you read this, he records that the woman follows the disciples and Jesus around crying out for help. And Jesus does not answer her. And finally the disciples say, Oh! Can you please send her away? She's driving us nuts. Okay, I added that last part. (laughs) Send her away? Sometimes in our anguish, or sometimes in someone else's anguish, we're uncomfortable with that. We might ignore our own depth of pain. Certainly, we try to silence out sometimes the anguish of others because it can be overwhelming. And sometimes when we're in our own pain, we just keep going and ignore it because there's always something in life to do. But this woman models something important here for us, that when we seek God's help, that we give him our all, give him our all, that we allow him to see our pain, that we don't deny how harmful and hurtful this life is for us. There are many answers to prayers, but being vulnerable to God is such a healing step. The third act is actually where it gets interesting. He said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. But she answers him, sir, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he said to her, for saying that you may go, the demon has left your daughter. Jesus' response to the woman asking for her daughter to be healed is a little bit rough to read. 
We look at this and we wonder what's going on here. What he says to the woman actually is mystifying because it sounds exclusive and intentionally hurtful. He's telling her, of course, that the children of Israel come first. But using the dog analogy is so awful because a dog was a slur against Gentiles. Interestingly, though, the word dog here means small dogs, house dogs, like puppies. But still, Jesus using it in this context seems not sensitive at best and offensive at worst. She asks him a question. She's asking him for help. And we wonder as we hear his answer, does he not care? Does he not want to be bothered? Is he reinforcing a cultural hierarchy that exists? Is this his humanity speaking because he's in a bad mood? Is he being ironic? Is he joking with her? One professor I looked up said that we have to decide if Jesus is testing the woman or if he's trying to win an argument here. Perhaps. The problem for us, though, when we read this, is that we don't want to be tested by the Lord when we come to him in desperation, nor do we want to engage in a word battle where the rules are unclear. It's scary for us when we read this because it might bring up fears that we have about God. It might bring up bad experiences we've had with people in authority who didn't care about us at all, but only about themselves. And then we put those feelings on the Lord. It reinforces the idea out there that God is the unjust judge who can't always be trusted with our fragile lives. In all the rehearsing we do before we go and do something big, this is kind of one of those things we wish would never happen. However we read this, we should pay attention to what it brings up in us. Because often our reactions where we cast God in a negative light reflect our own fear and bias, not who he really is. So whatever this brings up for you, I encourage you to wrestle with Jesus about it. Talk to your friends and family about it. Honestly, I'm a bit unsure why Jesus answers her this way. It's true that he's not a robot. His responses are not scripted, nor are they predictable. And we may have no problem with him telling the rich young ruler to go and sell everything. We may love it when he calls the Pharisees whitewashed tombs. We might understand when he tells Peter he's being like Satan, or when he tells a whole group of people that they're an unbelieving generation when they don't understand what he's saying. My point is that Jesus responds to each of us how he will. He's an infinite God whose purposes go far beyond our knowledge, and he can speak to people, his creation, his children, however he wants. There's something he's calling out here. There's something he's naming before he performs a revolutionary act of kindness for this woman. What is helpful for us, really, is how the woman responds. She's not offended. She either gets him or she agrees with him that she knows she's not on the list of people who should be getting favors. In great humility, she takes his words as her due, knowing she is less than the children of Israel, who he has come to help. She treats him with respect. She calls him sir. And she tells him, yeah, I'd be willing just to settle for the leftover bits that fall from the children at the family table. 
Here, she dares to answer him, though, without backing down. She has come this far, and she will not leave without giving it her all. Listen to what the French abbot Bernard of Clairvaux says. It is only when humility warrants it that great grace can be obtained. And so when you perceive that you are being humiliated, look on it as the sign of a sure guarantee that grace is on the way. Just as the heart is puffed up with pride before its destruction, so it is uh, humiliated before being honored. It is the possession of a joyful and genuine humility that alone enables us to receive grace. This woman has left pride at the door. She has come with nothing except an honest plea to Jesus with whom she has been very real. And in a lot of ways, she reminds us of Jacob, who wrestled with the angel. She reminds us of Abraham, who pleaded for one more soul to be saved. Of Hannah, who was heartbroken that she could not have a baby and kept going to pray. Those who come to Jesus full of themselves can't receive what he so powerfully can give them. Because of her heart, Jesus will give her the grace she is asking for. He is pleased with her answer because she is demonstrating a fearless trust as well as an understanding of what he can do for her. What he does next is important for how the church will act in their faith. Her daughter is healed because he has made it possible just with a word. He doesn't need to be present in the flesh for it to happen He is God and he is able to heal by the power of his spirit being ever present. What a gift and a promise that is to his people for those who pray, knowing that the Lord is everywhere. So the last verse closes out the story. She went home and her daughter was lying on the bed and the demon was gone. The woman has no context for knowing that Jesus can heal from a distance. But she believes it. And she leaves and she goes home and her daughter as well. What a gift. So let's circle back to talking about the intersection of faith and courage. In John 16, Jesus is in the middle of his last words to his disciples before he's crucified. He talks plainly to them in a way that he has not done before about what will happen so that they will be ready in the upcoming days, which are going to be harder than anything they've ever experienced in their lives. And when they finally grasp what he's saying, they tell him, oh, now we get it. Finally, you're talking plainly and we understand and we believe that you have come from God and we believe that you're going to do all these things that you say. Their faith has been increased. And Jesus tells them, you're going to weep and you're going to mourn. But then joy is going to come. And then he says this. I have said this to you so that in me you might have peace. In the world you face persecution. But take courage. I have conquered the world. Jesus has conquered. Jesus has overcome the world. He has overcome every sorrow and difficulty and suffering and failure and heartache for those who will believe in him 
Look at what he tells his disciples. Take courage. In the middle of reminding them that life is going to be awful, he reminds them to be brave and bold and unafraid. Like, G- like Joshua being reminded to be strong and courageous, to take the land that the Lord has given. Jesus tells those who follow him that faith and courage go hand in hand because of who he is. And he enables both faith and courage because of what he has done and his victory over every kind of darkness. So we can face the impossible in our lives, knowing that he has worked, that he is working, that he will work for good for those who love him and are called by him. We have dark times in our lives, and Jesus meets us and brings joy out of our suffering, not always in the ways that we want, but always he brings new life out of our sorrow. So church, take courage in the things that you face now and the things that you know you will face in the future. Jesus meets us and brings life and hope and the impossible. So may may we find strength and truth in this passage, and may we be inspired by this woman's story, and may we have fresh faith and courage for what we're facing. Let's pray. Thank you for listening. If you would like to learn more about the Free Methodist Church of Santa Barbara, you can visit us online at fmcsb.org. We pray this message has been a blessing to you.